yes, you want to make sure that payout is worth it. There's no question about that. I mean, you've got to do some, you have to have some analytical. But I, I have to tell you, a lot of it is just following your intuition on things. Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant ideas, and a regular good time. This is Brilliant Thoughts with Success People editor Tristan Almada, the show that thinks about how personalities, relationships, and communication shape business success. And now here he is, Tristan Almada. We tend to shy away from risk. There's something about the unknown consequences that keep us doing the same thing all over again. But taking risks and challenging ourselves is what we should be doing to take our careers and ourselves to that next level. At least that's what this week's guest, Frank O'Connell, would say. And who's Frank O'Connell? I mean, why would we want to believe this guy? Well, he excelled as the president of Reebok Brands, the president of HBO Video, the CEO of Indian Motorcycles, and a lot, a lot more. If anyone knows the power of taking risks, it's Frank. And we dive into this. This became one of my favorite episodes of the year, and he gives a lot of secrets. Jump in. Welcome back, everyone. Another brilliant thoughts episode. And, you know, this person, his his bio came across through me, and I was like, this is this is somebody I've got to talk to. The very the very thing that really stood out was the title of his book it's jump first think fast and i was like wait a second i think that's me so i need to i need to interview this guy frank o'connell welcome to the show how are you i'm fine nice to be on the show well thanks for doing this man you're coming out from vermont and you said it's a little cloudy maybe out there what's it look like yeah, it's a little it's a little cloudy, but we still got those leaves on the trees. So that's beautiful, man. Beautiful. I'm out here in Southern California. It's a little cloudy today, too. But I want to start with the title of the book because that was the thing that caught my attention the most. And like I said, it's it's titled Jump First, Think Fast. And the reason it caught my attention was because I get to work with a lot of um, high-level individuals that really act quickly, and they don't—they don't really think through the whole process before they kind of shoot. It's kind of like shoot, aim, right? That's that's what really typically happens. Is that where you're coming from for this, or where did that come from? Yeah, I mean, you know, a bit, but it's a lot more, you know, coming from you know, a personal standpoint where you can't really grow in life if you unless you take risks. And then from a business standpoint, it's very hard to grow a business unless you really, you know, uh, take, you know, take risks and put yourself in uncomfortable positions. So in, here's another little one, which is, you know, I, Harvard does all these great studies. And when they did said most people use about 30 percent of their life, you know, um, and yeah, because they don't. They, you know, they kind of sit on the bench and it's kind of like we said at Reebok, you know, um, it's not, life is not a spectator sport. And so a lot of people don't grow because they don't really take those risks personally. And then it's critical in business to be able to, you know, grow businesses. You just are not going to be able to get, you know, 100% assurance that what you're going to do is going to work out. And so you are going to face failure. And part of my thing is, you know, move quickly. If it doesn't work, air correct and, you know, move in a different, different direction. But the first key is, you know, to really it is really to take risks. And incidentally, in, in my book, I've talked a lot about success and failure. So I, I like that, man. It, it's got to be both, I think. Right. Because you can't have one without the other. You, you mentioned something that I had never heard of. Most people use only 30 percent of their life. I have a question for you on that. But first, uh, I want to remind everyone that's listening in I mean, you 
You were the president of Reebok Brands, president of HBO Video, CEO of Indian Motorcycles, and chairman and CEO of Gibson Greetings, and a whole bunch of other amazing things because you've sat on boards. So you've seen quite a bit. How then, how would you say that someone could live closer to 100% of their life? Yeah. You know, I think, you know, part of it is you got to put yourself in uncomfortable situations that are going to really challenge you um, so that you're going to develop other aspects and skills and things in your, you know, um, you know, in your life. Um, and, and I'm, you know, I'm big on other, there, there's so many ways to get the, take this risk and get educated. You know, travel is a big one. You know, you got to go to China. You got to go to India. You should go, you know, not just to the beaches <laughs> and drink, <laughs> drink, you know, with those little umbrellas. <laughs> you got to see the real, where the real people live and whatever. And, you know, a lot of people consider that you know, very, very risky, but God, that just expands your life and your lens is how I say the lens you look at expands, you know, tremendous exposure to other cultures, people with very different, very diverse thinking from your own is, I mean, just critical to growth. And for a lot of people, they don't like moving from that comfort zone you know, into areas where God, these people are so different from me, but it, that's just critical to be able to lead a full, you know, full life. And and the other part of this is I'm really big on understanding yourself. And when even when young entrepreneurs come to me, you know, I uh, the first question I I look at or people in mid career changing careers, you know I I say gee how self aware are you, and still a lot of people coming out of college are still the flock following the rest of the sheep everybody else's value chasing money we go you know to the big investment you know banking firms and when I get a hold of them I say stop. Can you tell me in five lines what's really unique, you know, about you, you know, your passion, strengths and weaknesses? And then let's talk about a path, maybe less followed, that will make you a lot happier in, in your life, both personally and, you know, success in whatever mission that you 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 have. And that's all kind of connected to growth and risks. So. Man, it, it goes back to growth and risk. I want to talk to to you about certain specifics in in your life, whether it was at Reebok or HBO or or Indian or anywhere you want. Where where can you go back to and say, "Wow, you know what? I, I took a massive risk. I was scared like crazy, and I didn't know what I was doing, but because of that, I grew into." this new me what where was that tell you one of the uh biggest um areas was i went to work for reebok and you know you only get called in to be a ceo or run a business normally where when it's in trouble and so you know <laughs> reebok was getting beat up by Nike, you know, their funnel, it was taking them three years to develop new products. Their funnel was empty and, and you know, a technology drives a lot of athletic, you know, footwear. So um, I was able to oversee the development of the pump shoe. Um, yeah, which was, you know, to go up against, you know, Nike and Air Jordan. And so then when we developed the shoe, I said, you know, we have got to have an advertising campaign that is as dramatic as the product. And, you know, we'll never win if I put my Nike, if I put my pumps, you know, up against Nike product, everybody's going to see it still being, you know, Nike's game and on the court. I'll never win with them on the courts. So I went to our advertising agency and my direction to them, which is Shia Day, great agency. And I said, I want 
an advertising campaign that none of your clients would ever run. <laughs> Ooh, you know, I, it's like got that. to be that dramatic for me to break through. So eventually they came back and we worked closely with them. They came back with this bungee jumping commercial. And first, bungee jumping at that time was illegal in the United States. But there were these <laughs> two brothers and we had so the, the commercial basically, and you can look at it on the Internet now. It's very popular, you know, where there was a one jumper had a had Reeboks, the new pump. Other jumper had the Nike and Nike had a an air, another air shoe, another pump shoe. But it was nowhere near, you know, as good as the Reebok shoe. So they both jumped off of this bridge in Washington. And then only the Reebok jumper came back. The Nike st came back with empty shoes. <laughs> so, so, so this was not the basketball court. You know? so, I, so I go back to our management in the board. And I, I show them this commercial and the, everybody goes crazy. The, the head of PR said, Frank, every mother in America is going to call you. <laughs> oh, dude. And to which I said, great, you know, and we ran the commercial. So the first thing that happened was one of the three networks refused to run it. Well, that created the most incredible amount of PR. Everybody went running to the other two networks to see why wouldn't they, why wouldn't this other network run it? So a big risk. We did a billion dollars in the first year of Reebok. So that was that was one. Wow. So, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm watching the commercial, Frank, right now. I'm watching I, it. And the guy the guy pumps his shoes before he jumps off the bridge. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, I'll give you, now I'll give you another one, and these ha these have to be in the advertising realm, but they're big because they're big companies and big brands. Um, I, I did a turnaround of a company called Skybox in the trading card business. So we had you know NFL, NBA licenses, you know, etc. The company had lost eighty million dollars, and. Um, two big risks I took. One, I don't know if you ever collected trading cards, but it's all okay. All right. Well, you know, it works on perceived scarcity. So, you know, you're chasing the card, you're trying to put full sets together, etc. But um Skybox had overproduced cards. It's just the worst thing you want to do because then it starts to lose value in the secondary market as kids are trading them. So and we had millions of dollars of inventory in our warehouse. So I had millions of dollars of cards destroyed, high profile using accounting firms, filming all of it, saying, you know, now, you know, we're back where demand exceeds, um, demand exceeds supply. And, and then Nitz and I called, I brought all the retailers together and I served them shredded trading cards on silver platters with back <laughs> black tie waiters. You know, <laughs> do the you got to do that. As you can see, I'm into bold and dramatic as well. But then um, I actually was because um, we had a great basketball license. I was in David Stern's office in New York, the commissioner of the NBA. Yep, I know David Stern. Yeah, he a great guy. I learned a lot from him about negotiation, believe me. <laughs> I was more on the other side of it, but anyway. <laughs> you were on the, the hard side. side. I was on the hard side of it, yeah. So so um I was trying to negotiate down my royalty payments, I think. Anyway, and so after I finished, he said, Frank, go to your television uh tonight. And that's when um Magic Johnson announced that he was HIV positive. I mean, it was the most dramatic thing that happened in sports in years. I happened to, we happened to meet Magic and I ended up making, a, being the first person to make a deal with him right after he announced he was HIV positive. Now, 
huge risk. Now, I did some research and I found both kids and parents saw that he was a hero for coming out, etc. But he was phenomenal. We did an incredible commercial, which you can also find on the internet with his son, Andre, from a, a earlier, you know, relationship. Um, and um, it, 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 it drove our business and our profile through, you know, absolutely through the roof. And he tried, I traveled all over with him. He went to sales meetings. We did commercials. And then as a result of that relationship, we ended up with the trading card rights to the dream team which was a phenomenally, wow. you know, valuable, whatever. You know, so that's another case of, you know, just taking a, a big risk that, you know, you you didn't know whether it was going to work out or not, you know, so and wow. being bold. I love that. So, you know, as I'm talking to you and I'm thinking of the title of the book, right? Jump first, think fast. You You seem to be a very strategic thinker. So... It's almost, uh, and help me out on this one, because I'm thinking the reason that you can jump first is because you've, you've trained yourself through, through time to go through these processes and now understand what it takes, right? Take the risk, let's be strategic. And now you're kind of used to it. So you can jump first quicker, way quicker. Is that, is that, am I going in the right direction? Yes, that's right. And the other part of that is when you after your jump is now, particularly in the environment we're in now from a business and every other standpoint is agility. You know, the environment is shifting. My consumer is shifting so fast and all of the channels of trade are shifting so fast. Now you've got to be agile in terms of being able to willing to make in some cases, major strategic shifts. You know, we used to do a strategic plan at last. We review it every year. Now you got to review it every three months because so much is changing, you know, underneath it. And also, you know, you can't, there's no way to keep researching fully the answer on all. So you, you got part of that is trying to spot trends, then get on those trends and, you know, basically, yes, you want to make sure that, the payout if is is worth it. There's no question about that. I mean, you've got to do some, you have to have some analytical. Tool. But I, I have to tell you, a lot of it is just your intuition and following your in, you know, your intuition on things. And um, you know, in my case, it's understanding and a feel always for the consumer. I live close to the consumer, I'm well grounded. Yes, I do all of the research, but I kind of really live there. So intuitively, you know, I'll make a lot of these moves. What does the research look like when you when you try to go deeper in with the consumer? Where do you start with that? Yeah, um, well, first, I'm very big on strategic plans, even for very small companies. So I'll tell you a little bit about that. So um, the first you know, piece is to really, you know, understand your product, you know, and it, it, you know, now you may, you may also be going in and innovating, but, but first, you know, understand the product. You know, I made everybody at Reebok and everybody else wear all the competitive shoes. You know, mm. and I said, I want you to play basketball in them. I want you to have a, a, your own personal understanding of this product and how it, it differs from other products. And then the research that we do is yes, there's internal information you have, but then I constantly reach out to understand and map the marketplace. Who are the competitors? What? How does the market segment? What are the segments of the market that are really, you know, growing? And and now, what is really tricky is you you got to be able to forge. You got to take a shot at forecasting the future and what's going to shift. And nobody knows what that is, but you've got to go out there and have lay out some possibilities, and then. Um, then the next piece of that really is creative, which is idea generating in terms of potential directions that you can go in strategically. And then 
what information can you get to try to evaluate those, you know, those directions? Now, where I find most people, first, let me say, most entrepreneurs fail many because they don't have a plan to begin. They have budgets and other things, but they, they never were exposed to planning. They don't quite really understand it. Then, And the second part of that is, is not just then your product, but you really have got to know the market you're in. Okay. And then I'll give you another one, you know, and, and the dynamics of that market. And then the other is questioning what business are, am I in? So I'll give you a quick one on that. In the, um, you know, trading card business, they, everybody said, well, you're in the athletic trading card business, et cetera. So I did some research with really a brilliant advertising guy. And that said, no, you're in the relationship business. You're in the business of connecting kids and their heroes. Not just athletic cards. So then we said, well, what are other heroes for kids? God, it's comic books. It's television. It's what I went to Hollywood and I signed up because nobody was doing trading cards for all the movies and television programs. And for peanuts, they gave me licenses because I was building, a you know, a new, you know, I was building a new business. But that just what business am I in really Change things. And then even when I was, you know, with uh, when we were trying to turn around Gibson Greetings, which is, you know, small share between, you know, Hallmark and American Greetings, that research led us to say, look, we're we're really in the relationship business. So you got to study both not just the sender of the card, but also the receiver of the card that led us to a whole new approach particularly for designing cards for younger people which the older um uh, greeting card companies they were still producing pink cards with syrupy verse which was not for millennials <laughs> well i have a question for you about yes. the trading cards because you you went through this whole i mean you lived it and you created it it's a whole different category than what i'm used to right I collected Pokemon cards and yeah. I mean, I want to know what you think of a Pokemon, like, because that just, it felt like just that came out of nowhere and it just yeah. showed the potential. Yeah, no, you, you're absolutely right. It did come out of nowhere and that's not unusual for in And that business, as I refer to it, is the collectibles business. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which is unique onto itself. Um, so um, and you just never quite know where it's going to, you know, where it's going to come from. So we try to predict that, you know, um, incident when I was at, uh, oh, Gibson, I developed a line of, I thought, God, I got these, all these stores and 10,000 merchandisers in these stores. What else can I sell? And we came up with a product called Silly Slammers which were bean bags with chips in them said like a lawyer you slammed it down and it said <laughs> me you know, or or Polly pucker up it said oh no uh, <laughs> but it, 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 but we turned that into a collectibles business now I, I, we're I'm in the process of doing that and you'll enjoy this one I have a um toy company called shilling. And um, it's all retro toys, no batteries, no electronics, targeted at millennial moms, the old playpen, millions of jack-in-the-boxes and all, all sorts of games and everything else. But we, we just developed, we developed about two years ago, a product called Nido. You can look it up, N-E-E-D-O-H. It's a compression ball. And we have turned this and we're selling millions of units. We have plants in China 24 hours a day. It's in every toy store, every mass merchandise. It is, you know, we've got all the influencers. Everybody's running <laughs> YouTube videos, whatever. Now, what we did was said, okay, now let's make that 
how do we make that into a collectibles business? So, you know, you start developing characters, you start working the perceived scarcity so that kids want to collect all of the characters, you know, um, and, and that's, you know, that's how to employ the collectibles concept, you know, in other areas. So, Okay. I, I want to go deeper on that. But first, who created Schilling? <laughs> Schilling actually was a guy who went to Harvard, who was in the business school. He looked out of the window one day at Harvard onto the green, and there was a guy who had a mechanical bird, you know, that he was flying. Yeah. He went, he made a deal with this guy, got the rights to the mechanical bird, started selling it. And that's how he started this incredible toy company. So here's this Harvard grad who, yeah, and, he, and he's built a fun. I mean, we have 900 SKUs who are in all sorts of categories, you know, in this whole retro thing. And so we, we just bought two years ago, we bought Lava Lamp, the old Lava Lamp company. We're reinventing that in all sorts of ways. And then we just bought Crazy. Big Wheel. The old oh, yeah. big wheel. Yeah. So we're reinventing that. Yeah. Frank, how are yeah. you involved with Schilling? Um, well, first, you know, I was involved when we found the company and then negotiated a price for it and then took it to backers. So we got a great private equity backer, um, you know, to back the company. Then part of the deal is they'd only do it if I went in temporarily as the executive chairman which I did do. And I put the management team, assess the management group, you know, but it reorganized the management, put did with them a strategic plan. And then I backed off to the board, backed off to the board. And of course, during the, you know, pandemic and whatever, of course, all those kids at home, you know, I mean, the, our volume just became incredible, but it's, uh, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. crazy. Frank, um, I, I'm just coming up with questions, and I'm taking a ton of notes, by the way. And um, I'm, you're, uh, you're a note taker like I am. <laughs> oh man, I, I I know that an hour is not going to be enough with you, so I'm trying to get in the most important questions now because I want to show you my scientific notebook, just like yours. I still, while I use the computer, my creative. That still oh. is my creative pad. You know? Frank, let's talk about that. <laughs> <Because> that. <laughs> we don't often jump into this. When you are thinking, I want to know the thinking process behind you looking at something and saying, okay, let me start somewhere. What does that look like on paper for you? Do you carry a journal just for thinking? Do you carry a journal for other things? What does this look like? Yeah. It, 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 it frequently, you know, it, a lot of the stuff somehow occurs frequently at night, you know, <laughs> when I'm suddenly awake and I get on an area or a trend or something and say, hmm, then is the first thing I get up in the morning, I start just writing down the ideas, you know, ab about that particular area or that particular trend and then of course i then i go online and see has anybody else been inventing products is there any information on the size and growth of the okay. you know the market you know um so but that's my uh you know and the other thing is i also i spend you, you'll love this in the food business where did i get my ideas and my information is you know i'm just a big believer in the grassroots side in addition to doing the you know all the research so when I, my wife and i would go to cocktail parties i'd ask the hostess if i could look in her cupboard <laughs> <laughs> wait how do you approach the hostess and be like excuse me excuse me can i look in your cupboard <laughs> I, I have to engage her in what products she uses whatever and then of course what i'm looking for is and then I, of course i speculate what i love is i my wife I always go nuts. When I go to restaurants, I listen to everybody else's conversation and I start speculating and who they are, what they buy, what they do. So when I go into the when I go into the cupboard, I start looking at, well, how much private label have what brand do they, you know, what brands do they buy, you know, et cetera. Now, um, 
one of the negative impacts that we just seem to get invited to less and less cocktail parties. <laughs> That's because you use them as small research samples. Yeah, I'm in the closet. I'm opening. I'm I'm always popping out of their cupboard closet while everybody else is drinking, you know? <laughs> That's funny. Oh, there's Frank again doing research. Yeah, but being near the consumer in stores and constantly, I feel like I'm in my watch says that you're constantly doing um research but i also believe you you have to spend as much time as you can at the point at which the consumer is buying the product now that's harder online obviously i read all the sorts but i mean I, I will go and observe stores i you know and i used to force my management group said look i want every quarter you've got to visit 30 stores here's a question and i want you to come back with your observations and everybody share it with the management team because what happens is you know executives get so far removed they're reading all the data they're listening to all of their other people who are salespeople who are going and who are facing the customer and a lot of my ideas come from customers as well you yeah. know that they get so removed from that grassroots side but that grassroots side to me is where it's the fodder for my, you know, the fodder for my, uh, my thinking. So I love that, man, that I love that process, by the way. So thank you. Thank you for, for going that route. So tell me here, when we were talking about trading cards, I was thinking there, there's a lot to it there because you, you mentioned the this is a relationship business, and and I love that. Is there anything that we can learn from the trading cards that helps us understand human behavior better? Like, what what is it about the trading card and the popularity about it that helps us understand? Yeah, well, we'll look two things. We've got greeting cards, and we've got trading cards. Okay, okay. so Both. let me so let me take one second on greeting cards. What I really discovered when we started to do some consumer work was that particularly younger people did not feel that there were cards that really expressed them and who they are and their feelings. And then secondly, there weren't cards that were relevant to the kind of current world and relationship. So, for example, 50% divorce rates. Children have often four grandparents, <laughs> you yeah, know, man. marriages, etc. And and they have, there is a whole, I'll call it kind of divorce humor. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, which... He, he, you know, was not at all being addressed and understood. And then also what we would do is so we a better understanding of the person sending the card and how they wanted to be perceived. But at the same time, then we started to research the impact on the recipient of the card, ah. which helped us as well re, you know, redesign, you know, the messages. So how do you how do you do research on the recipient? How did that go? Uh, uh, yeah, we well, you, you know, we we go to research firms and we're, you know, at that point, of course, so many people were receiving greeting cards. It was easy to reach that audience. But then we broke it all down by psychographics and demographics to better, uh, you know, to better understand and at times we would just give them sample cards and we say, how do you react to this? And then they would tell us, no, that's not, I, I wouldn't feel great getting this card or this card really makes me feel good. And this is why. So there, there's a lot of good psychological research that you really can do. So I like it's that. Really, that was also during the time, the beginning of electronic greeting cards. Oh, and, and, and so I bought, I didn't, I, you know, I was trying to understand that mar market. There was a Blue Mountain Arts or a couple of greeting card companies that were exploding. So I bought a company called eGreetings Network to better understand electronic greeting cards. Yeah. And, and so we then, you know, we, we, you know, then went into the electronic greeting card business, which is, you know, so, uh, so totally 
so totally different. Frank, how did you end up, and then we'll go back to the trading cards yeah. part, but how did you end yeah. up as CEO and chairman of Gibson Greetings? Well, you know, it, it, here's the way often it happens. Um, a lot of it comes through personal contacts of people who, you know, know me or had worked with me before, you know, who who recommend who recommend me. It, you know, this interesting. In this case, it was exact a, an executive recruiter. And I learned early on, get on the radar screen of the top executive recruiters. And it was very interesting. And this is part of a little bit. My mantra was two people had turned the job down before. And sometimes, and I interviewed them. Sometimes, you know, I say, take jobs other people won't take if you think, you know, you can really (laughs) grow and do a great job and gain a reputation by doing that. So that's. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, so an executive recruiter really, um, you know, found me and, uh, and thought my background was really appropriate. So what what do you think is the the thing that attracts companies to you? What what is that main thing that you think it is? Um you know, I, I think a lot of it, of course, is my experience in terms of creativity, innovation, and making bold moves. And um it, it, but but there two attractions okay one attraction and that was hbo which was a growing hbo pre-recorded video cassettes was a growing company the installed bases you remember those days of the vhs and whatever was growing like mad you know and um so but what they wanted was someone who could take it to the next level, both mm. in terms of understanding what other content we should be providing and acquiring. Um, you know, and like I went out and got Jim, all of Jim Hansen's, you know, um, product. Oh, that's cool. Oh yeah. And that, and I, and I even did, I went to uh, Christy um, Hefner and I got the playboy. That's a, what a what a wide range, Frank. That's... Yeah, and that and that was kind of big risk, but there was yeah. huge, there was huge, you know, there was huge volume there. So, um, you you know, that's kind of uh, um, and and so that business just you know went through the the roof. But in the middle of that is when um, I I got the um, opportunity to really go and you know and run you know, in run Reebok. So uh, <laughs> I like that. I like that. Now let's go back to the trading cards, the greeting yes. cards that that's cool. I didn't know that understanding the recipient. I think that is key and understanding the, the current trend, right? Yes. Would you say it's the same with the trading card or is that a little different? Because you mentioned the relationship with the hero and, and the person trying to buy the card. Yeah. It's a, a little bit different, but you know what we started to do there, you know, instead of, you know, he, you know, at that time, everybody was very heavy. They thought it was all driven by sports. People were, it, 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 all my competitors were building these incredible printing, you know, um, digital printing factories and whatever, et cetera, mm-hmm. which we, which we never did because we wanted to move much faster with the, you know, with the technology, but uh, definitely understanding who were kids' heroes, who were heroes. Now, I'll tell you one of the biggest breakthroughs, we ended up getting the rights, exclusive rights to the whole, you know, comic books, you know, um, you know, to uh, Diamond and Marvel comic books. No way. And those are all the superheroes. And that turned out to be unbelievable because it was phenomenal graphics. They had incredible, you know, followings. So, you know, you know, that's, um, you know, that's just, you know, understanding who was that 
you know, who was the recipient? Who was the one that was so inspired by those, you know, inspired by those heroes? So You know, that that's interesting. You're making me think now differently here because I'd never seen that relationship until you mentioned it, the the hero aspect. The, that is so true. Now I'm thinking, like, what else am I missing when it comes to just watching Netflix, HBO, you know, go or whatever we're watching, or even magazines. Why do why am I attracted to certain things? It's like, yeah, what is that relationship? So Frank, now you got me thinking differently. So thank you for that. I appreciate that a lot. Uh so look, you you have a, a bachelor's in economics and an MBA. How did how did those help you? St- getting started your first job because I, I'm I'm trying to connect the dots, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, you know, and I'm getting asked a lot because I yeah, I spend a lot of time mentoring, which I love. And so, you know, probably in the last week, you know, I've gone through some interviews with some young people first who are asking, do I really need to go to college? You know? <laughs> That's the number one question right now. And it's valid. Yeah, it is very valid and it's not right for everybody. And I just wrote a whole, you know, a whole thing on that, you know. Um, And then the second question is, well, if I got my undergraduate, is it worth going on and getting an MBA? Okay, so I mean, that's a big and like my son, you know, who is uh, I got two millennial sons. Well, you know, he's trying to pay off $250,000 in loans. Uh, so you got to say, gee, you know, are you getting a return on that, you know, return on that investment? So I, I have a totally open view. Now, in my case, the situation was that um, um, I I was able to double register and just go on one additional year to get the MBA. And they took 50 students a year. And I was... The one thing on my background, I don't know if you saw, I was married when I was 17, had my first child when I was 18, and I'm I'm at I'm at Cornell. So I'm <laughs> wow. That yeah. I didn't see. I love that. Yeah. And and let me tell you, that gets you headed for business and your career. That jump starts you in a hurry. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. So it was a big decision. God, do I well, one year I could. I could deal with. Now, what did that do for me? You know, first I'd say, you know, when you're looking at that education, there are really two things you got to consider. What is it going to do for your own personal development? Okay. You know, and then second, how does that really fit into your career? So from a personal development standpoint, I'm a kid. I grew up in a on a farm in a rural community in upstate New York. So going to Cornell just exploded my lens and view of life and my personal development. I mean, that opened the door in my personal development. When I went on and got, you know, the MBA, a lot of that was really more self-confidence that I could deal with the best and the brightest, (laughs) that I was going to be probably, yeah, competing against, et cetera. Now, then you have to you know, kind of look at it and say, what were there specific things I learned? Well, you know, right now and in the last few years, I'm kind of I've been on all the advisory boards at Cornell, undergraduate, graduate school, the university, et cetera. But, I, you know, education in a lot of ways still has not caught up with um you know, what's going on in the world and in business. It's just moving so fast that we're just obsoleting a lot of aspects of, you know, of education. I'll, I'll give you just, you know, one. And I have to say, yes, most all of the business stuff I really learned in the tre- in the trenches. I mean, I really learned through, you know, ex- um, I learned through experience. But um, one that I I point out is they weren't really teaching anything about culture at Cornell when I was, you know, when I was there getting an MBA. I mean, that wasn't, I don't ever remember a course. I don't remember it, you know, ever being mentioned. However, when I got into business in particularly doing three turnarounds, which are very different, 
You've got to get in, you know, quickly. You've got to figure out the strategy. And in many cases, you've got to move quickly because the question is how much runway do you have? How much cash flow do you have to get the company spun around? So you end up making much more dramatic decisions, you know, much more, you know, much more quickly. Got and, it. But you can get the strategy figured out much easier than shifting the culture of the company. And the question was, how many executives have ever really had the experience of totally shifting the culture of a company? Well, that I definitely did not learn. You know, I, I did not learn in school. So, you know, so I, I have, you know, just in, when when I counsel people, I have, you know, a bunch of questions I ask them and we try to start sorting out, you know, college, yes or no, and then grad school, yes or no. So interesting. Uh I, I never thought of you meant you had one phrase there where you said that you went to you got your MBA mostly for for self-confidence, right? Yes. And I, I never pieced those two things together. It's like, wait, wait a second. Did I? Did I go to certain, did I do certain things for self-confidence? And now I'm thinking how much of the education that we pay for at a higher level, right? Not like a doctorate or along those lines, but, you know, MBA, maybe some college, how much of that is just for our self-confidence so that we can go out and feel like we can do things? Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I, I think it's a lot of it. You know, you, you become friends with the best and the brightest and, um, you know, the, uh, there is, you know, another benefit of that, of course, is the relationships that you build with your peers is, inc- is incredible. And incidentally, when I interview young people for college and when they start talking about their, um, what they're submitting from an admission standpoint, I said, you know, one of the things you got to be able to express is what value are you going to bring to your classmates? What are they going to learn from you? Because so much of that is one learning from your peers and exposure to a wide range, you know, of peers culturally, uh, you know, et cetera. And then, of course, that network. I mean, I use my Cornell network constantly in a lot of the ways I've made jumps is when I want to find a company or acquire a company, I'm looking for people. I go right in and see, is there anybody on the board from Cornell? Is there anybody from the management team from Cornell? Because they will generally talk to me. You know? Dude, that's like a personal LinkedIn uh, oh, yeah. connection. I, I love that. And now it works the reverse because everybody comes to me from the Cornell <laughs> Well, Frank, now I'm going to go to you. I'm going to be like, Frank, do you know? I'm gonna... <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that's nuts, man. I love that. So- you mentioned earlier on, when I was taking notes, you, you went through this really fast on the research. And you mentioned that one of the, the biggest challenges that that people have when they take on a role like you've taken on throughout, throughout all of these companies is planning. And I want to know where you would start planning when you, w- with a company, like when you take on a new company, what does the planning look like initially for you? I'm going to describe the process. Okay. Um, And one of the important parts of the process is that you involve the management team and probably down fairly deep in the organization, you involve the organization in putting the plan together. Now, I often will bring in an outside consultant who has the process because companies don't have that skill on on board. They don't have people who are trained in the development of you know strategic plans. So I often bring in someone from the outside, even in smaller companies, yeah, I'll find somebody who's worked for a strategic consulting company who wants an internship. And I bring them in to help us facilitate, you know, pulling the pulling the plan together. Um, then you know the the first part of that is, of course, is what we, you know, data informed, you know, 
Um, we stay away from data driven because that implies there's an answer and all of it. It's we a data informed. So the first thing is we do the analysis, internal analysis, you know, of of the company, um, and you know, and then. Um, and I know a lot of that is the normal financial things. Where are we making money? Where are we not making money? You know, et cetera. Then the second thing is, of course, in the one where most companies are weak in putting their plans together is really studying the exter- understanding the external environment environment. You know, mm. who, who, you know, um, what are the. You know, what are the segments of the business? What's growing? What competitors are in there? What kind of moves are they um, are they making? Are they likely to make? And then, of course, we then start to throw the ball and say, let's forecast. What are the factors that are going to affect our business in the next 10 years? And what information do we have, you know, at all on those trends? Okay, so. so that's kind of the I'm just going to call it, that's kind of the database thing. Now, the next part of that is the creative. And so here's my theory on that. You can never end up with a better strategy than the ideas that you create um, for strategic alternatives. So. All of that analysis isn't going to tell you here are the strategies you you should pursue. Those are that's the human factor. That's the creative factor. So there I put together groups, um, idea generation groups on alternative strategies. And it's I have to say, I learned a lot. I went to MIT, which which is innovation on demand. And I learned a lot (laughs) that I've used throughout my life on, you know, innovating and how you create, you know, creativity. How do you do it? How do you do it in groups? But we put a group together with a facilitator and we come up with all of these sets of alternative possible strategies. Then we vote, narrow it down, and then pick the ones we are going to get information on, which probably is five or less analyzing the strategies where we can get data to help us make a decision and then make a decision on the strategy, put together the executional plan. Then the next part of that won't go through all of that is then I make sure that plan is everybody in the company understands it included in that plan, of course, is, you know, value, mission, and purpose are the, are the key things. So those are embedded into you know, in the plan. And then we translate the plan throughout the organization with metrics um, that are measurable and time related. And that goes to individuals, which is all about account of accountability. And then you get into performance reviews mm. frequently to evaluate where you are and how you're performing against the plan. So Frank, on that, uh, I, I we interviewed uh, Jim McKelvey, he and he created Square, that little Square app that you swipe. Yeah, and he he says the only book I read while I was writing my book, just so that I didn't have any outside thoughts and influence on my current book, he said was um, uh, measure measure what matters, and it all it was all focused on OKRs, right? Do do you typically operate through more through OKRs or KPIs, a combination of both, or something completely different? Uh, well, we you know, any strategic plan, we try to end up with five pillars, okay? And, mm. and I'll tell you about the rule of five, which I learned from MIT. Most of us can remember the first two, probably the last two, but maybe not the one in the middle. So most of us... So most of us can't handle, you know, more than, you know, five things. So we break our strategy into five major, um, you know, what we call five, you know, major pillars. And then those are the ones that are that get translated down, um, you know, into very measurable you know, very measurable results. So, you know, one was probably going to be innovation, product development. How many products will we develop? When? How quickly? Etc. You know, um, customer. So, so, you know, 
You're telling me the five pillars can be different for any situation. So oh, yeah. you're saying yeah. these are the five pillars we're going to focus on, right? Yes. So that's very yeah. OKR-ish, right? Which is beautiful. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And then, and then we translate it. Everybody in the organization know, knows those and can repeat them. That's the, you know, that is always the key. So. Frank, you're like, you're like giving me a master class in an hour. And I feel like it's just for me. It's nuts. So. I just wanted to thank you for that first. So, <laughs> so Frank, what do you typically gravitate to for reading to to keep you? Because you mentioned personal development was very key for you. So, what does that look like? What do you What do you seek when you're reading? Yeah, it's uh, that's very interesting. Is you know, I've been, I've read, you know, or part of. I have to be honest, part of. Most of the kind of the popular books that come out, Steve Jobs, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I get, I have a terrible time. I get bored very quickly <laughs> reading that. What I read is I read every day. First, I, you know, I read it minimally three news feeds every day. And in those news feeds, there are articles on things that are every single day relevant to my business, whether it's millennials, the economics, uh, Mm. you know, um, so, you know, so I concentrate on the current and articles that are very relevant to uh, the areas that I'm in, you know, that I'm involved in. And then I just anything, any kind of research, you know, studies from the large colleges, well-based, whatever. I'm just absolutely, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely um, drawn to. I, I want to, I'm going to make one other comment is because people always ask me, you know, on the whole creativity and my lifestyle standpoint. So I get up, you know, fairly early in the morning and I work out seven days a week. Seven days a week. And I've done it for 40 years. God, even sick. I don't think I've, I've, I have missed a day. That's critical to me because, you know, I start, you know, I'm with my, I'm on the bike with my iPhone. I'm, I'm looking at the news feeds. Okay. Then I'm also, um, starting to formulate, you know, what are my priorities for the day? So, that positive energy that comes from the workout to me has been a lifesaver. And, you know, I, I, I have a, I can, I'll give you my little mantras. Everybody kids me about these. Give them to me. All right. The you know, first one is have fun, be fun. And business is not life threatening. Get perspective. It's not life threatening. Mm. And then, you know, it's kind of like always being positive. And then the other is I use a high dosage of humor in my businesses, particularly, um, you know, to diffuse, you know, we get into a board meeting and I see, oops, we're going to have, you know, an unproductive controversy. You know, I'll just jump in there with a bunch of humor and level the playing field and whatever. But I find and that's part of what when you you said, what attracts people to me? They, you know, uh, you know, they love the fact that my life as I've done all sorts of stuff, but I all, I'm always having fun, you know, I love and, that. and also the people around you, when I say be fun, you know, they, they want to work with somebody who is just, you know, positive and, you know, full of energy and, you know, and human. You know, and and that really goes so far. And it also, you know, I, I swear I've raised, I think, hundreds of millions of dollars. A lot of that is just people invest in people often a lot more than they do in just business deals. So, you know, I could find I'd start a presentation with my humor and whatever. And I could see when I had the audience in my hand. And a lot of that was, you know, raising substantial amounts of fun, in one case, as much as $100 million. So uh, anyway. That's awesome. 
Frank, this was a, a pleasure. I felt like I went to uh, some type of a school or mastermind, and I really appreciate that a lot. Uh, I'm going to be in contact with you. Everyone, please pick up the book, Jump First, Think Fast. Uh, so I, I appreciate our time, Frank. Thank you. And there's also, then go to the uh, website, which is jumpfirstthinkfast.com. So easy, easy. Yeah. Do you, are you on Great. social media? Should we follow you somewhere? Yeah, we're all over. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you, you'll find us. I'm a lot on LinkedIn, but uh, also the other areas too. And the book appears in various pieces of the book and articles, kind of thought provoking articles. I'm popping out on those. So, yeah. Good, good. I'll look for those and I'll, I'll put them out there as well. Great. Hey, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> you, I have to say, you, you had excellent questions with me. My life easier. You know, somebody asked me, <laughs> somebody asked me yesterday to predict and you know and to discuss what was going on in the economy. And I, you know, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's a weird question. No, I don't know. Yeah, but, yeah, it, it was a weird, it was a weird question, and like uh, you know, I said I got to con- check with my chief economist. So I'll- <laughs> I would have been like, hold on, let me get my crystal ball out. Just yeah, the- <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today. If you like what you're hearing, drop us a review or just tell your friends. This has been a success podcast. Head to success.com/podcast to hear more just like it.